This is the WFG National Title Insider Report, featuring industry experts, thought leadership, and what's trending to keep you informed and ahead of the market. In this episode, we meet founder and executive chairman Patrick Stone in Bellevue, Washington, to get his take on the Seattle market, the latest economic news, and his outlook for the rest of 2019. Well, the Northwest has benefited from an influx of educated younger people uh, moving to Seattle, Portland, and looking for jobs. And this has also been a, a growth area for technology and then obviously Amazon. You know, so you've had good growth up here. Both Portland and Seattle are international markets and do a lot of uh, import and export business. Although we're, <laughs> we'll see for how long with the tariffs. But, um, you know, we see a lot of business activity here and we see younger, educated people deciding that they want to live in the Northwest. And you talk about Amazon, but you've also got Microsoft. That company has really turned around under the current leadership. Packar, so many other companies, Costco. There are big companies based here that we don't even talk about, and that really drives this economy, doesn't it? Very much so. Very much so. And employment growth has been very good here. A lot of people focus on price increases in homes, but a better measure to use is to take and the median price and divide it by the median family income. And if you do that, then you get worried about places like San Francisco, L.A., New York. But uh, uh, Seattle has grown, but it's still not in the same league as San Francisco, L.A., or New York. And that's kind of crazy for people that live here and have watched their homes double in value in the last five to seven years. I want to ask you about new construction while, while I have you because, you know, I'm, I'm driving around the east side and I see more signs. And this may be a softball question for you, but it, it feels like the builder's are building more than they were a couple years ago. Is that really the case? Absolutely. Absolutely. And something happening this year that we haven't seen in almost 10 years, and that is major builders are starting to do uh, first-time buyer subdivisions. I'm talking about subdivisions at the lower end of the price range. They're building these subdivisions specifically targeting the first-time buyer. We have not had subdivisions being built below median price in a long time. Uh, it was almost necessary for builders to focus on high end, but you can't build a thousand lot subdivision if you're selling million dollar homes. So that curtailed some of the construction. What I'm hoping we will see is continued growth in starter home uh, building. And with that, an increase in single family construction, which is still significantly below where it was before the downturn. I've been hanging out with you for about 10 years, so I have picked up a few things along the way. So I noticed all those A-boards out in suburban Seattle, and it, you know, I looked at that and I thought, boy, that is a good sign that we're starting to see some new construction because that will help first-time buyers. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and we are going to see a significant increase in first-time buyers. And people go, oh, yeah, 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 but what about affordability? Uh, actually, the affordability will be, will be okay. And what we are seeing with the millennials is a fairly significant population group just moving into the first-time buyer age. Now, I want to be careful here because before the downturn, first-time buyer age was 26 to 36. Because of the downturn, it moved up, as did 10-year in homes and a couple other measurements. So first-time buyer right now is 2829 to 3839. And we have the largest population bubble coming into that age group that we've seen since the baby boomers. A bigger generation than the baby boomers. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years. I want to shift focus to national. You 
have traveled quite a bit this year. So you see markets, you keep your pulse on markets around the country. Uh, obviously, we're in Seattle, epicenter of the housing market right now. But what's going on in other markets around the country? Is it still a healthy market? I hear agents telling me, hey, this is the first normal real estate market, real normal market we've had in maybe 20 years. Is that the case elsewhere? Well, yeah, but it is uh, specific to the to the location. By that, I mean if you step back and take a look at population movement, um, the bulk of the population movement, probably 60% of it has been into the south. The upper Midwest and the northeast has actually had very little population movement. The west has been second to the south. So we've seen movement into these areas. If you break down price appreciation, there are states that have been uh, 1 or 2%. Uh, you know, so it isn't even, it doesn't, it doesn't happen, it doesn't transpire evenly everywhere. It is based on economics, job growth, and then there's an underlying desire uh, among different groups to live in different places. Uh, one thing we're seeing now that's interesting to me is Dallas, Texas has had, I think, four or five years of 100,000 plus job growth. And yet the the they're able to build the homes there as fast as they can so they haven't had the tremendous price appreciation but if you go to houston it's a little bit different market than dallas we have seen las vegas and phoenix come back almost back to where they were before the downturn actually i think phoenix is a little slightly ahead and las vegas just slightly behind where they were before the downturn obviously san francisco and la have had a good run there they've kind of petered out a little bit in terms of appreciation go back east it kind of varies by market dc because the politics always does well although i think i don't think they're quite back to where they were at the uh, at the downturn but the price appreciation has been significant so it really varies by area upper midwest is still slow it is interesting to see you mentioned Texas. I mean, that market has just exploded in the last couple of years. Uh, it really has. And one of the things driving it is that uh, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and Nevada do not have income tax. And the recent tax bill has actually had an impact. And there's been some interesting studies done on the impact of eliminating the SALT deductions in principally the blue states. Um, it is having an impact on the blue states. California, Oregon, and Washington have seen it in certain price ranges. Basically, 900000 to about a million five is where you see it mostly. Um, people that can buy a home above that aren't so worried about it. But people aspiring to be in that price range are hurt by the lack of, of the inability to have the SALT deduction and also the caps on mortgages, uh, deductions, and property taxes. So, you know, you are seeing, uh, you are seeing some differences by market, but it, it's, uh, it's fun to watch. And by SALT, you're referring to state and local taxes for anyone listening that may not be aware of that. So obviously that's driving a lot of people to Texas, but it's also affordability, right? I mean, you're seeing a lot of outflow out of Southern California into, say, Phoenix, Vegas, and even beyond that Texas market, right? Oh, absolutely. I think the principal driver in Texas has been job growth. Um, the lack of an income tax helps. Um, the principal driver in Tennessee, as far as I can tell, has been the lack of income tax. There is a uh, you know, Nashville is getting a lot of attraction right now as a destination, especially uh, a lot of people I know are going there buying, uh, you know, fairly large uh, acreage and building a nice mansion and just kind of laughing at everybody else. But whatever works, right? <laughs> uh, Nevada's had an influx of uh, people from California because of the tax situation. You know, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay, let's talk more um, macroeconomic now with uh, worldwide, the tariff and the trade war that's going on, uh, particularly U.S. and China. And I know there's obviously some concerns you have, uh, not only 
present, but historically what happens when we get into a situation like this, uh, please give us your perspective on this. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm not a fan of tariffs. I'm not a fan of tariffs because... Um, it, to start with, they're, they're uh, derived from a sort of a punitive outlook, right? We're going to punish you because you're not cooperating with me. So you have a, you're kind of starting from the wrong foot. And I say that because then the person or the country that is having tariffs levied against them is compelled to respond. They have to respond or they lose credibility with their own people. So tariffs, by their nature, are always a quid pro quo to the mutual detriment of all concerned. There's some really interesting numbers if you want to step back a minute and look at whether or not uh, our trade deficit is a problem. And I can show you that our trade deficit is offset almost exactly by a influx in invested dollars from foreign countries, especially into U.S. financial instruments. As the trade deficit has grown, the amount of foreign dollars coming back to the U.S. and buying financial instruments has increased. The benefit of that is it's kept our rates low. I, I can show you that globalization over the last 30 years is really why we have low interest rates. Um, and if you stop and think about it, you say, well, yeah, Pat, but, but wages and salaries are going up. Isn't that inflationary? Well, much to everybody's surprise, it hasn't been, but really it's really easy to understand why it hasn't been. Goods inflation has been negative for five years. In other words, the price of goods that we buy has actually gone down Well, wages and salaries have gone up, so it's offset wage and salary growth in this recovery. That's why we've had no inflation. So if you levy tariffs, does goods goods continue to go down in price? No, they go up. And, uh, you know, so if you look at this, you start levying tariffs, and people say, well, it's only for so many dollars on so many products. But everything surrounding that goes up. And I'll give you an example. I have a very dear friend in the commercial construction business. And when the steel and aluminum tariffs were levied, he got very depressed. And I said, why are you so depressed? He says, because everybody's going to raise prices. And he was right. Subsequently to the uh, steel and aluminum tariff, he's seen raises, uh, significant raises in the prices of concrete, plaster, uh, everything around commercial construction. So that if you really look right now, go out like 18, 24 months, it's going to be hard to build anything going forward now. Um, so the tariffs are really, really are destructive. And also, you know, not to not to belabor the point, but a classic example was the Smoot-Hawley tariff that really tipped a, a, the previous Great Recession into a Great Depression. And then you can look at the uh, tariffs that uh, the Bush uh, levied in 2002 against steel. It's estimated that cost us 200,000 jobs. So let me sum this up and, and be fair. Was there a bad situation with China regarding uh, intellectual property? Absolutely. Did China take advantage of uh, trade laws? Absolutely. Did China need to change? Absolutely. We had negotiated participation in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which with 11 countries in the surrounding the Pacific Ocean would have basically isolated China. It would have caused China real economic grief without being punitive like a tariff, without saying, hey, uh, I'm bigger than you are, right, which tariffs do, so the other leader has to stand up. The Trans-Pacific Partnership would have probably solved the problem without all the disruption being caused today. But, you know, So I guess that was a long-winded answer, but I'm not a tariff fan. And Smoot-Hawley was uh, 20th century, late 1920s. 1930. 1930. Protectionism, Great Depression, just to kind of give everyone kind of the, the download on that, right? Yeah, Smoot Hawley was, uh, Smoot and Hawley were congressmen, and uh, I don't remember if one was a senator and one was a representative. But anyway, the Smoot Hawley 
tariff was enacted, I think, in 1930, and it basically levied a tariff against 22 countries. Well, surprise, surprise, they all reciprocated with tariffs on U.S. goods, and it basically shut down what international trade there was, and it ex exacerbated a bad situation. Now, you can find economists that will argue both sides of the issue, that it did or didn't cause the Great Depression, but it certainly contributed to it. It is interesting what you said about steel and the rising tide lifts all tariffs. So, right, a tariff on steel and the concrete guys and the wood guys and the other guys go, well, hey, I mean, might as well, right? Well, they basically have to because, uh, you know, they, well, you know, it's human nature. Let's be real honest. If you're working in a job and uh, someone doing the exact same job as you gets a raise, do you want a raise? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It <laughs> definitely makes sense, Pat. Let's talk interest rates. And I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, there's the, when you talk about tariffs and you talk about the economy, everything's intertwined. So there's the, there's the double whammy, the triple whammy. There's the other things that could happen because of this. And there's talk of China's nuclear option selling U.S. treasuries, right? And the impact that could have on interest rates. How realistic would it be for them to do that? Because wouldn't that impact them as well yeah i'm not um i haven't i'm not worried about that i mean i've heard that but i i, I think it's a little far-fetched first of all let's put it in proportion china has about eight percent of the ust bills uh approximately the same amount japan has uh, other foreign holders uh, uh have about uh, two or three times as much as china and japan together so foreign buyers of u.s treasuries has been uh, really as a result of the trade deficit, right? As I said earlier, these people sell us their goods, then they invest their money in our treasury bills and then in our financial instruments. Uh, it's really been uh, to our benefit uh, from a financial point of view. So will China uh, dump the U.S. Treasury bills? I don't think so. I think it would cause them uh, some pain on the on the yuan and their ability to maintain the uh, um, the pricing that they want on their, their currency. Um, we'll see what happens, but I don't think that'll happen unless things get really, really ugly. Uh, and even if it does, its impact will be limited to 8% of the total U.S. Uh, Treasury. Uh, you know, there's 20, uh, 22 trillion worth of debt out there right now. Uh, we have gotten away with very low rates in part because we've had a significant foreign buyer influence on our on our financial instruments. So we'll we'll see. So the good news is there's plenty of debt to go around. Uh, you know, it's not funny. It, I'm sorry. It's not funny. Tongue in cheek, I'm okay. saying. Well, let me give you a couple numbers here just for fun. So um, if you look at at countries and what percentage of the of their government debt to uh, the economy, we're now at 107 percent of our economy in federal debt. Um, we are going to catch Italy at 133% by about 2025 or 2028. Uh, we do not want to be just like Italy. I mean, we'll have higher rates, we'll have issues, we'll have problems, uh, but we're heading down that road like it doesn't matter. And this, pardon me, this absolutely idiotic posture now that we can finance debt is really based on the fact that we've had this trade deficit. The same people who think we can finance debt and uh, it's not an issue are the ones that are in favor of the tariffs. So I think there's there's going to be a there's going to be a, a rude awakening here. Our trade deficit has kept our interest rates low because foreigners buy our financial instruments. We are going to upset that apple cart. We are going to see higher inflation. We're going to see higher interest rates unless we uh, we walk away from this fairly quickly. 
We talked off air about uh, corporate debt, and we've talked about this a few times, maybe off air or word around the campfire. What's the latest and what's the concern there? Explain that to our audience, uh, uh, real estate agents, title agents, agencies around the country who are listening to this podcast, corporate debt. We don't hear a lot about that. What's the concern? Well, it's it's gotten fairly significant. You know, it's up to I think forty seven or forty eight percent of GDP. So corporate debt has doubled since the downturn. I mean, it's gotten mammoth. But the real concern is a lot of it's highly leveraged debt, meaning that these are loans that are going to companies that are already deeply in debt. And uh, you know, the two areas that I watch that concern me, um, obviously, the energy companies. Uh, price of oil dropped a couple of years ago, and uh, if you're in the shale business, you haven't made money in a long time, but you're, getting, you're still able to get debt. Uh, the other one is uh, non-profitable non, uh, technology companies. Uh, so there's a lot of corporate debt out there, and there's a product called the uh, collateralized loan obligation that is structured just like the collateralized debt obligation was, which is how we, how we packaged and sold mortgages before the downturn, where you could buy a tranche uh, based on risk and return. Uh, there's collateralized loan obligations now, but the highly leveraged debt is up around a trillion dollars a year. This is this is idiotic, to be honest with you. We're getting away with it because rates are low. But if we create upward pressure on rates, a lot of companies are going to have their debt service go up. Now, S&P, S&P 500 debt service now is very, very low because rates are low. Um, so this is all intertwined. You start screwing around with this, you, you, you create mammoth problems. But the corporate debt is large. Um, remember, uh, remember VC, uh, remember the dot-com bubble? Well, I was going to say, it reminds me of that. Well, that's a separate issue because VC money now is almost twice as much as it was during the dot-com bubble. And that's money being lent to companies that are just growing to have an idea. Well, um, 40% of that VC money is lent to tech companies, and about 40% of it's on the West Coast. So um, if we have any sort of downturn created by up rising interest rates, a reemergent inflation, and a high level of corporate debt, then you're going to see a problem with all these companies that people have been financing on the come. You have a re- recession, they, uh, they have a problem. In terms our audience would understand, buying a home and counting on it rising in value, right? Regardless of the interest rate, you have debt on it, but you're playing with your home equity. You see, and that's essentially what's happening with a lot of companies that aren't showing a profit, but have a ton of debt at a low rate. When that rate goes up and they have no way to make a profit or make that interest payment, they're in trouble. Yeah, what rates go up, it creates a problem. You know, when you buy a home, you're usually in a fixed, most people are in a fixed rate mortgage, so the rate doesn't go up. But in corporate America, if you have to refinance that debt or if you're getting highly leveraged debt, you're paying a, a higher interest rate. So, um, yeah, it's, it's problematic if you have an economic downturn. Last question that we, the runway we're on here, Pat, uh, always asking about the next recession, and there are a lot of wild cards here. Um, we're pushing through 20. 19 now almost halfway through here what's your what's your feel for that now i mean what is it going to depend on the tariffs i mean where do you uh, stand on that well there's okay if you look at europe the european union just downgraded their forecasts for the year and they're uh, they're down about some of the countries are down at a half percent uh, i think spain is the leading country in terms of economic growth in europe this year but overall european union is expected to be uh, one and a quarter maybe uh, in growth this year gdp growth 
Uh, China slowed down. Now, is it picking up? We'll see. They uh, they financed a tremendous amount of debt in China. I mean, it is phenomenal how much debt they financed. Uh, so we're seeing, you know, uh, we're seeing some slowdown in Europe. We're seeing some question about whether or not the emerging markets have uh, have uh, stagnated. Uh, we got a heavy amount of debt in corporate America. Um, you know, I think if we get uh, prolonged tariffs, we see the rates go up a little bit. I, oh, yeah, and I should say that corporate earnings are going to be down this year versus last year just simply because they were artificial last year uh, with, the, uh, with the tax cut. The other thing that people don't really understand is we increased federal expenditures by about 10% last year. That was a hell of a stimulus to the economy and artificial also. So this year the GDP is going to slow down from here. Uh, if inflation starts going up and you don't see any uh, meaningful recovery in Europe or emerging markets, uh, we could slip into, you know, just psychologically, we will start getting more negative and more cautious. And with that, we'll slip into a recession. If I was to predict, I would say the odds are, have increased that we'll have a recession in early 2020. Uh, are they more than 50 percent? Probably not yet. But if we keep going on the on the uh, tariff thing, they'll get there pretty quick. Thanks to Patrick Stone, founder and executive chairman of Williston Financial Group and WFG National Title for joining us on the Insider Report. And thank you for partnering with WFG. To learn more about our unique process, systems and technology, visit WFGAgent.com.